Well, this evening we're going to look at the third chapter of Romans, and for starters, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, because God and the clock willing, I may be able to go beyond verse 8 tonight, but just to be on the safe side, we'll start with that first uh, passage beginning in verse 1 through verse 8, and with that I'll ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. What advantage, then, has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say? Their condemnation is just. He who has ears to hear the Word of God, let them hear. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, our Father, as we sit beneath the proclamation of Your sacred Word, we ask that You would help us understand the import of it, and that we may be grasped in the very depths of our being by its truth. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now for several weeks we've been following the argument set forth by the Apostle Paul when he speaks of the wrath of God's being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress that truth of God that God so plainly makes clear to every person in the world. And Paul told us that the consequence of the human's universal rejection of this knowledge of God is that God gives people over to their own sin. Since we, by nature, don't want to have God in our thinking, God says, fine, I'll give you a mind that is darkened and reprobate. And out of that darkened mind comes that, that list of wickedness that we saw in chapter 1. And then Paul goes on to talk about the hypocrisy of his own people according to the flesh, Israel, who boast in their possession of the law 
And the fact that they are God's chosen people and have the sign of that in their own bodies through the Old Testament sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. And last week we examined the significance of circumcision, and Paul went on to argue that it's not circumcision that gets you into the kingdom of God, but those who are circumcised inwardly are the ones who really are the children of promise. And so after he has now dropped this bombshell on the playground of the Israelites telling them that the mere fact of their descendancy from Abraham and the fact that they are circumcised is no guarantee of their salvation, Paul here, as he does so many times in his epistles, anticipates the reaction and the response of his listeners. So that's what we're trying to do tonight is sort of pick up on Paul's line of thinking. He's just told the Jewish people that their Jewishness will not guarantee their salvation. So chapter 3 then begins with this question, well then, what advantage is there for being a Jew? And what's the profit of circumcision? If my Jewishness doesn't save me and circumcision is no guarantee, then what's the advantage of the whole thing? If we apply that to our circumstances in the New Covenant community, as I said last week, many people have their confidence in the fact that they've been baptized or that they've joined a church. And Paul, if he were here tonight, I'm sure would say to you, just because you've been baptized, just because you're a church member, is no guarantee that you will enter into the kingdom of God. Our Lord gave weighty, ominous warnings about that, didn't He? saying that the church is a community where there are always tares growing along with the wheat. And he warned that the people honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. And even though we make a verbal confession of faith, that's no guarantee. It's what's in the heart that will determine our redemption. And so we could say by application tonight already, what advantage then is there and being baptized. Is there any advantage to being a church member? Because this is an extension of what is Paul is asking here when he says, what advantage is there being a Jew, and what profit is there in circumcision? Well, you would expect by this point, since he's downplayed circumcision so much, that he would answer his own question by saying, well, frankly, not much. No advantage at all. That's what I've been trying to tell you, that just because you're circumcised, you're not saved. So don't think there's any advantage in it. But that's not the conclusion he reaches. When he asks the question, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision, he answers his question this way, much in every way. What Paul is saying is, you ask me what advantage it is in circumcision, what advantage is it in being a Jew? If I would say to you today, what advantage is baptism? What advantage is it to you that you're a member of a Christian church? The advantage is much. There are a multitude of advantages to that in every conceivable manner. Well, what manner? Where's the advantage? 
Well, notice how Paul continues. He says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Well, there's a little technical point here that I, I just have to say. I can't just slide right over. Literally, what Paul says here in the text is, first of all, instead of chiefly, he says, first of all, to them were committed the oracles of God. Now, he's just said that there are many advantages to being a Jew and being circumcised. And then he goes on to say, firstly, and some nitpickers against the authority of Scripture have said, well, here, the Apostle Paul couldn't possibly be inspired by the Holy Ghost because after saying that there are many advantages to this, and he says, first of all, which suggests that there will be a second and a third of all and a fourth of all and a long list of explanations of these advantages, Paul only gives one. He says, firstly, and there's no secondly and no thirdly. What's with that? Well, that's because they don't really grasp the significance of the word that the Paul uses here. The word is a form of the word protos, which in Greek means first, not necessarily in a sequence, but first in the order of importance. It's the word Jesus used when He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. And so the translator really has it right here when he, when he renders this word chiefly, because what Paul is saying, there are many advantages to being a Jew, many advantages to circumcision, but the main one is, the chief one is this, that they were given the oracles of God. Don't miss that. The apostle is saying here, the tremendous advantage that the Jew had over the Philistine, over the Syrian, over the Babylonians, was that they had the Word of God. And there's no greater advantage for any person in the world than to be within earshot of the Word of God. You know, sometimes I think back over my, my own life, and I was born and reared in the most liberal church, in the most liberal presbytery in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I had a minister who didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I had a pastor who denied the miracles of the New Testament, and his sermons exhibited that skepticism. That's what I was taught growing up. I didn't know any better, and I was not a Christian. And yet, part of the liturgy in that church every Sunday morning was the reading of the text of the Bible. So, we, everything that went before the reading of the Bible and everything that went after the reading of the Bible was distortion, heresy, still in spite of the minister, not because of him, I was sitting under the Word of God. That was the advantage to me. Even though I wasn't a Christian, when I became a Christian, it was through the testimony 
of the Word of God, and if you would have asked me the day before I became a Christian, Sproul, do you believe in God? I would have said, certainly. And if you would have said, do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, despite it had no influence in my life, I still would have said, yes, I think it is. Because in preparation for my own call to conversion was the Word of God at work in my life. Remember that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching as His method of saving His people. And where He has invested His power is in the Word. The power is not in the preacher. The power is not in the program. The power is not in the liturgy. It is the Word that is attended by God the Holy Spirit. It's the Word that can cut through your your mind, that can cut through your hardened heart, that can pierce your soul and bring you to Christ. So is there any advantage to be in the vicinity where the Word of God is preached? Was there any advantage to those people in Israel to possess the oracles of God, the very Word of God? I think back to the Great Awakening in the 18th century in New England when the person God used so mightily there was Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards was a firm believer in the doctrine of election. He was completely orthodox in his understanding of that, and he believed that unless God from all eternity chose a person and elected them to salvation, that person would never come to faith. And yet he pled, he cajoled, he scared people half to death, telling them to repent and come to faith, because he didn't know who was numbered in the elect. And as for Edward's perspective, or my perspective, I assume the election of every person I ever meet. I can't read their hearts, and I don't know the hidden decrees of God. The hidden decrees of God are none of my business. That's why they're hidden. But people would hear Edwards, and they'd say, well, what if I'm not elect? What should I do? And Edwards said, be in church every Sunday morning. You don't know you're not elect. And you should do everything you can do in your fallen condition. Yes, but there's nothing I can do to incline myself to the things of God. That's right. You cannot muster from your own heart true repentance unless God the Holy Spirit changes your soul. But you can hear the Word of God and know that you're going to be judged at the end of your life. And if you're not saved, you're going to spend eternity in hell. And so, I recommend to you that you be a seeker. Be careful here. Edward's doctrine of seeking has caused so much consternation among Reformed people that it isn't funny. But what Edwards was saying was this, even though false repentance will not move God to save anybody, and there are people who repent to get a ticket out of hell not because they've really been convicted of their sin. It's like the little child that you catch him with his hand in the cookie jar, and he says, oh, mommy, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, please don't spank me. 
It's a repentance motivated not by a broken and contrite heart, but out of a fear of punishment. We call that attrition rather than contrition. And Edward said, well, even if all you have is attrition, bring it to church. And listen to the Word of God. And peradventure, that's all he would give them, peradventure, maybe God will save you. That was sound advice. There are people who are reached by the gospel who have never darkened the door of a church. I know that. But the church, beloved, is where the means of God's saving grace are most heavily concentrated. And so, if you're interested in an enlightened way in your own self-interest, the wisest thing you could ever do, even if you're not a believer, is to listen to the Word of God every chance you can. Because if nothing else, it'll exercise a restraint on your sinful desires and tendencies. It is a great advantage to have the Word of God. And like I say, I am so thrilled to see so many people here Sunday night, not for a 15-minute homily or for a 20-minute meditation, but for a 50-minute or so exposition of perhaps the heaviest book of the New Testament. you got to want it to come Sunday night. You might have a habit of coming Sunday morning, but when you come Sunday night for the whole dose, do you have any idea how advantageous that is to you and to your children to be under the preaching of the Word of God? That's what scares me with all this experimental worship that we're seeing in the church today is that so many people are moving away from a serious exposition of the Word of God. That's where the power is. That's where the advantage is. And the church that moves away from that disadvantages their own people. But it is a tremendous advantage to you. Even if you don't like it, even if you don't believe it, it is an enormous advantage to you to hear the Word of God. And so, I urge you to take advantage of that advantage. That's what Paul is saying to his kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, the great advantage of the Jew was to them were committed the oracles of God. And he continues with this line of reading. So what if some did not believe? The oracles of God contained the promises of God, the covenant promises of redemption that God gave to Abraham and to his seed and to the people of Israel. And so Paul says, so what if some of them don't believe? Does that mean that the promises of God become suddenly null and void? What if we see people baptized all the time and we track them through life and we see that some of them, in fact, in many cases, a majority of them never come to faith. Well, does that mean we should do away with baptism? Do we throw the baby out with the bathwater? 
Do we say that since baptism does not guarantee salvation, there's no advantage to it? No, all baptism is, is a visible expression of God's Word of promise to all who believe. And those who do not believe in no way diminish the value of the promise that God makes to those who do believe. If every one of us is a covenant breaker, that does not destroy the integrity of God in His part of the covenant. And so, Paul says, I know how you're thinking. If people don't believe in the significance of circumcision, if they don't believe in the oracles of God, don't, doesn't that unbelief destroy the faithfulness of God? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? What does Paul say? Don't even think about it. Certainly not. By no means. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. And the Bible does make that condemnation that all men are liars. We are all promise breakers. The only one who is a perfect promise keeper is God. And that's how we live as Christians, that we trust that He's not like us. We break our promises. We lie to each other. We don't always tell the truth. But one of the things that God cannot do, we're told He can't die, obviously, but He can't lie. Because, because His eternal being and character is truth. It's impossible for God to lie. And because I lie doesn't mean that He does. Because I ignore His Word doesn't mean that His Word becomes worthless. Paul says, don't think like that. Don't ever let that kind of thinking get into your head. Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written. And now he cites a passage from Psalm 51 from the great penitential psalm of David. After David had been confronted by Nathan for his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, and you remember David was driven to his knees, and he wrote the greatest psalm of repentance ever, and where he says, "'Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And then he goes on to say in this psalm, listen to these words. This, I think, is the most powerful point of the whole prayer, where David says, I acknowledge my transgressions. This is true confession here. I acknowledge my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Oh, God, I'm a haunted man. I'm like Lady Macbeth scrubbing her hands to get the blood out, saying, out, out, damaged spot, and I can't get rid of it. It's always there. I know it. I can't hide from it. And then he says to God in this prayer, 
O Lord, against Thee and Thee only have I sinned and committed this transgression. Now, in one sense, that's hyperbole, isn't it? Because when you think about it, David sinned against his wives, against his children, against Bathsheba, against her husband, against all of his subjects there in Israel who looked to their king to be a moral exemplar. He let them down. He disappointed them. doesn't seem that he's making much sense when he says, God, it's only against you that I've sinned. Well, David understood that he had violated Bathsheba, that he had violated his own wives, he had violated his family and the whole nation. But David is speaking in the ultimate sense here that what sin, the wickedness of sin, is that it, is, it does violence to the perfection, the majesty, the holiness of God. In the final analysis, David says, you're the one against whom I've committed this evil. And then listen to these words. Oh, I love these words. Because if you want to know what real repentance is, here it is, where he said that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. You see, in true repentance, there's no rationalization. There's no attempt to minimize our guilt. There's no attempt at self-justification, which is the human tendency. Even when we confess our sins, we always hold back something, some of the gravity of it. Not David. Oh, God, that you may be clear when you judge. What is he saying here? He's saying, God, I understand that if you respond to my actions according to the law, according to your own character of righteousness, however you choose to punish me, you have every right to do it. That's why I throw myself on the mercy of the court. That's why I say, deal with me not according to your justice, but according to your tender mercy. That's my only hope. That's our only hope, friends, in the presence of a holy God. And so Paul quotes David and saying, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and clear when you judge. I mentioned this recently, I think, in, in, in a sermon, maybe not here, somewhere else, I don't know. But the embodiment of, of the Spirit of what Paul is saying here and what David was saying in Psalm 51 took place when Eli was judging Israel and was negligent and derelict in disciplining his wayward sons, you recall, Hophni and Phinehas. And one night, God awakened from his sleep there by, by Eli's side, his, his uh, young student, Samuel, when God spoke from heaven and called him, said, Samuel, 
And Samuel thought that it was Eli, and so when he woke up, he went over and he tugged Eli, and he said, did you call me? Eli said, no, no, you must have indigestion or having a bad dream, go back to sleep. So he goes back to sleep. A couple minutes later, God says, Samuel. And again, Samuel jumps up, runs over to Eli and tugs at him and said, did you call me? He said, no, I didn't call you. And now Eli's beginning to think, put two and two together, and he said, wait a minute. Maybe it's the Lord who's speaking to you. So if you hear the voice again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And again, God speaks, saying, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel responds by saying, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And then God reveals to Samuel what he plans to do to judge the house of Eli. He's going to kill Eli. He's going to kill his sons. And the Ark of the Covenant is going to be taken away from the nation. And so in the morning, Eli says to Samuel, did the Lord speak to you? Yes, he did. What did he say? Oh, never mind. (laughs) Nothing, you know, really. And Eli catches on. He realizes that he was the subject of whatever it was that God had, had reported to Samuel. And so now he insists. He says to Samuel, Samuel, you tell me what the Lord said to you, or whatever he said to you, may it happen to you. In that case, Samuel says, all right. And Samuel bears the whole story to Eli tells Eli that God is going to judge him. Now, in 99 cases out of 100, nay, 999 out of 1,000 cases, somebody that would hear that indictment would say, well, that's a little harsh. That can't be God. God wouldn't treat me like that. No, when Eli hears the indictment against him, his response was what? It is the Lord. It's the Lord. I recognize the Word of God here. I've been wrong. God has every right to do to me what He will. I've said to you before, every one of us has been a victim of injustice in this world at the hands of people. Every one of us has been falsely accused of things that we've never done. Every one of us has been subjected to slander, jealousy, and all of those things. And every one of us has inflicted that kind of damage onto other people. But remember that even if you are treated grossly unfairly by some mortal person, we have the right, according to the Word of God, to seek redress in those situations, to confront people to go to the church, whatever, even to the law. But on that horizontal plane, when we are unfairly treated, we also have to look to heaven vertically and say, Lord, what do you have in mind? Because I can never say that it's unfair of God to allow me to be treated unfairly by people. Let me say it again. 
I can never say that it is unfair of God for Him to allow me to be treated unfairly by people. Because no matter what I have to suffer at the hands of people, it's not worthy to be compared to the grace by which I'm covered by God in the forgiveness of my sins. Because if God would ever call me into account for my life, He would be perfectly justified to send me to hell forever. Do you realize that? If you don't know that, then you have never really dealt with your sin, and you don't really know who God is and His holiness. If I die tonight and wake up in hell tomorrow morning, I'll be one unhappy person. I'll be in torment and misery. But I will know that it is just that I'm there. And that's what Paul is saying here. These people want to blame God for their own unbelief, their own infidelity. And he says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. He could also say, I speak as a fool. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? And this is how, this is how deceptive we are. Well, even when I sin, my unrighteousness indirectly bears witness to the righteousness of God, because how would we ever recognize sin for what it is if we didn't have a standard by which to judge it? Nobody's really a relativist. You know, we, the, the culture claims to be moral relativists, and the person who says that there is no morality is the first one to scream foul when somebody steals their wallet. We know better than that. But we excuse our sinfulness and say, after all, boys will be boys. To err is human. To forgive is divine. Everybody's entitled to one mistake. We have this moral entitlement program in our culture. No, God doesn't entitle you to any mistakes, not one sin. And as I've said many times, if He gave you one sin, how long ago did you use it up? But we begin to think that, well, even in my, sin, my sinfulness, indirectly, in a crazy sort of way, bears witness to God's glory. God is glorified in my unrighteousness. So I might as well keep being unrighteous. I may continue in sin that grace may abound. Yes, I'm hearing heavenly chords. <laughs> Uh, but this is how distorted we are. We say, well, then let God be God. I'll be who I am. I'm just being myself. At least I'm honest about it. At least I'm an honest sinner. No such thing. Paul says, don't think like that. It's silly. Well, then how would God judge the world? If God is unjust when He inflicts wrath, if that's an injustice in God, 
that he'll never be able to judge the world. Now, what could be more obvious than that? And yet nothing is more repugnant to the culture, and in many cases in the middle of the church, than the idea that God is capable of judging people by pouring out His wrath. Dear friends, what do you think salvation is? The Bible says that salvation is being saved from the wrath that is to come. No preacher in the history of the world spoke more ominously about the certainty of the wrath of God than Jesus. God will not hold back His wrath forever. Every single person is going to have to face the judgment of God. You either face it on your own, or you face it, face it with God's appointed defense attorney, who is Jesus. But if it's not right for God to have wrath, how can He be judged? How can He ever judge the world? Paul, do you hear what Paul, Paul is astonished here with the thinking of his contemporaries? He should be around today. They say, have you people lost your mind that you have no room in your theology for the wrath of God? Does that mean there is no judgment? Does that mean everybody gets a free pass? Everybody gets a get-out-of-hell-free card forever? God's never going to judge you? That is the secret hope of every impenitent person in this world. I'm 15, I'm 18, I'm 25, I'm 45, I'm 75. I haven't been judged this far. I haven't experienced the wrath of God yet. All that stuff about the wrath of God is just scare tactics that the preachers use to keep us in line, manipulate us with guilt. I don't have anything to fear from the judgment of God because a good judge a loving judge would never punish anybody. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner, and he loves them unconditionally. No. God doesn't send sin to hell. He sends sinners there as they're just judgment. Paul says, don't forget the righteousness of God. It's because He's righteous that He is wrathful. His wrath is not a manifestation of a lack of righteousness in God. It is a manifestation of the fullness of righteousness in Him. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? This is, isn't this the cry of, of Judas on the last day? What are you picking on me for? Isn't the best thing that ever happened to the world the crucifixion of Jesus? If it weren't for me, you'd have no atonement. So you people should be saying thank you that I fulfilled the Scripture and delivered Him into the hands of the Gentiles. 
you to give me a pat on the back because through my sin, the glory has come to pass. Why am I judged as a sinner? Why not say, Paul says, let us do evil that good may come. As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, you see, Paul was accused of being an antinomian, of being one who so despised the law of the Old Testament, was so intoxicated by the primacy of grace and the sweetness of the gospel that it was said of Paul that he completely dispensed with the law of God. And this slander went around the community saying, this Jewish teacher over there is denying the law of God. Paul never denied the law of God. He always understood the proper relationship between the law of God and the gospel of God. Paul is saying, I'm not saying, blessed from the law, O blessed, or free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. There's no room in Paul's theology for the carnal Christian who takes Christ as Savior but doesn't take Him as Lord. That would be nonsense to the Apostle Paul. Don't put that slander at the feet of Paul. No, no, no. He's never said, let's do evil that good may come. The Apostle Paul never entertained the idea that the end justifies the means. We want good ends and good means. That's the way we're limited in the ethics of Christ. He said, why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderous reported, reported, and some actually affirm that we say, whoever says that, their condemnation is just. Woo. Paul says, those who twist my teaching, the apostolic word, have me teaching antinomianism, will be condemned, and justly so. Now comes the coup de grace, beginning in the next session, where he says, okay, what then? Or so what? What's the final result of all of this I've been teaching you here through these first two and a half chapters? Are we better than they are? No way. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all, all under sin. And what Paul is now going to develop is this, the universal guilt of the human race, Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. Every last one of us is under the weight of sin, under the condemnation of sin. He will turn to the Old Testament to spell that out in detail before he reaches that crescendo where he brings every human being before the divine tribunal, showing that all of us need the gospel. And God willing, we'll look at that explanation next Sabbath evening. Let's pray. 
Father, oh, how we love your word. What a tremendous advantage it is for our lives to hear your word. Give us such a hunger and thirst that we want to devour that word, that we want to take advantage of that singular gift that you have given to the church where you have focused the means of grace here in the church. We pray, O Father, that we may never despise that advantage, but that we may seek the full measure of the benefit that you have set before us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.